Welcome aboard uh, to Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Dave. And we're delighted to have you. We've, we have such a fun one today for you. We really, really Ladies do. and gentlemen, hold on to the edge of your seat. Prepare yourself for an agenda, er, adventure. We're going to live vicarious on an adventure around the world. Yeah, literally, Tom uh, Turkish... Turtsich Turtsich Sorry I didn't pronounce that right Uh, He literally walked around the world with his dog It took him 1500 days So nearly 7 years to walk around the world It was nearly 29,000 miles um, And it took him 7 years to walk around the world On average 24 miles a day um, Sleeping in a tent Eating about 5,000 calories a day Pushing a buggy with him With a lot of his gear Amazing stories Like really And it came out of him Experience one of his good friends died So it was death that forced him In a reckless pursuit of his dreams This is an amazing conversation It's one where you feel It just scratches that itch of adventure It kind of provokes me to go How can I live more adventurous In my daily life like even more so um, Great conversation I think You know we talk learnings We talk what motivated We talk How do you You know Continue to persevere Through the tough times And even governmental regimes Because as he walked Through the world And experienced So many different countries He talked about The subtle differences Between how countries Were operated And the different systems Which we use To organise people Fascinating conversation So without further ado We give you The wonderful Tom Turtsich Oh there you go We hear it's you all right. all right perfect are you in Pennsylvania now? No, I'm in uh, Cincinnati. My girlfriend uh, started her residency here. So we moved here like six weeks ago. So, well, actually in Kentucky where, you know, never imagined I'd be living in Kentucky, but here we are. Wow. And the fan is going on because it's actually hot, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, fans are always on. <laughs> wow. Jeez, well, it's raining here. It's lashing, you know, it's summer in Ireland. It's damn. Wow. It's wet. Yeah. It's, yeah. Pretty bleak, really. It's lovely. It's it's lovely. Nice and watch, though. You got the yeah, really great. nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You got yeah. the best greens in the world there. I remember looking out over the fields and just like a thousand different shades of green. Yeah, I, I saw you walk through Ireland. Actually, I was watching a video where it kind of showed your showed your trail earlier, and I was I saw. I oh, went in Ireland, cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I was in Ireland in high school um, briefly, and then yeah, walking across it. I have a ton of family there, so it was like a week walk. But I spent like a month there in Galway and Dundalk and all over the place with family. Jeez, can you still remember a lot of the places like that you walked around? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, yeah, there's. I mean, yeah, especially when I, you know, if I look back in my journal and stuff, it really sparks the memories. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ireland, I remember very vividly because, uh, you know, I just know so many people there have someone, uh, so many connections there. It's easier to recall. Wow. Pretty good. I love your work. Love what you've done. Yeah, yeah. I really admire your bravery and courage to pursue your truth. Well, it, well, it's certainly within each of us. I think it's awoken this, this, you know, the carpe diem, you know, like it seems like the whole root of when I was trying to distill, I was, I was having so much fun reading all your stuff. And I cried a number of times watching the videos. It was like, this is so emotive. It really, it awoken something inside me, this desire to, you know, we are all going to die. Carpe diem, you know, seize the day from dead poet society. And it seems almost like that d- death, death was the greatest motivator to catalyze you on this journey. Like Amory's death and your kind of own personal fear of death it almost sparked an awakening to live. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the summer. That's exactly it. Yeah, you got it. Hit the nail on the head for sure. Um, it's still motivating uh, in a certain way, but when I was seventeen, definitely, definitely so. You know? the bit that I admire that it took you nine years of kind of you didn't deflect from a dream, which is r- rare, especially through those formative years. You know, from kind of seventeen to. Whatever, 24, 25, like they're, they're pretty years where people's perspective, paradigm, even physical location often changes. But you stay true to this one dream and this dream being to walk around the world. Like, how did you manage that? Because all that time period you were in college, doing university, meeting new people, pursuing different things, all sorts of different activities. How did you stay true to this dream during this period? Or was this dream just pulling you there? Um, I think it was like, you know, when Amory died at 17 and then I thought about, you know, what I wanted out of life. And then I came to the world walk through, uh, kind of just like my values. I knew I wanted to travel. I wanted adventure. I wanted understanding. And so then as time went on and I thought about, I saw these other options, these other paths that you could take. So none of them appealed to me in the same way because they didn't fit my values and they didn't seem like they were worthwhile, uh, and they wouldn't be fulfilling. 
And then the same thing, it kind of replayed again when I got very ill after South America and then I had to return home to like get treatment and all that. And when I picked up walking again, I was in a terrible state and was just like, what am I doing out here? It's like raining in Germany and Belgium and I'm miserable and I could just be at home with family and friends. And, uh, but the same answer kind of came where it was like, what else would I do? You know, I had already kind of worked out that this was my ideal life. So then imagining living any other life seemed insane. Wow. It sounds so simple, but it sounds so difficult in the current era of a million possibilities and a million lives you can live. And then the cultural programming, which each one of us have of, well, you go to school, you get a job, you try to buy a house, you might have a family and you die. Yeah. Cultural yeah. programming. Tough, tough, tough things to shape for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Well, 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 well maybe let's, let's, let's bring it back to kind of going like, okay, so you have this idea to trap, to, to walk around the world, which it's about 25,000 miles to walk around the world. And I guess step one is kind of going, how do you plan it? Like, how do you plan? Like, cause. Yeah. Did you use Google maps or did you actually old school map and draw pen it and paper. out and pen and paper? Cause like a walk like that, you're hardly just following the little blue dot, like, and through that line, like. Yeah, you only have 24,900 miles to go, Tom. Keep on going. Turn left in 500 yards. Yeah, I mean, definitely not using a paper map. Uh, no way. It's just doesn't make any sense today when you have the phone. And GPS works even without internet. So even when I was in the desert, you know, the, the Google Maps, I could save offline. And uh, I could still find my location. And so it was all Google Maps. And... Then planning the route itself was a lot of trial and error. I mean, generally for each con- for each continent, I knew where I wanted to end. You know, the first year was Panama City, the second year was Montevideo, and then it was kind of figuring out, you know, first off, what is the easiest route to get there without visa trouble, uh, just to make it as seamless as possible, and then and then it was kind of feeling each country and what the roads were like, how populated it was, how dense it was, what what path to take. And that I got better at that as the years went on. In the beginning, I walked a lot of roads that were terrifying and narrow and sinuous and that I probably almost got hit by a car on, you know, a thousand times. And then eventually I kind of worked out the balance between taking a direct path versus taking a very windy dirt road, which would be very peaceful, but take a lot longer. And uh, it just varies country to country. Um, Say in South America, uh, I just took the Pan American basically the entire way, which is what most of the cyclists do because it's the only artery that runs from Colombia all the way down. And even for a larger road, it's very small, especially compared to like American standards. It's just and a lot of points, just a two-lane road. Uh, whereas, say, in Georgia or Azerbaijan, I could take these mountain roads, and they're just dirt paths, and I would just follow those around the mountains, and then every once in a while, pop into a city, and then be back in the countryside. Uh, so it was just a lot of a lot of a lot of trial and error. And uh, but because I have the cart as well, I push. You know, had everything in this cart. I am limited to roads. Uh, I try to do some trails every once in a while, uh, but it's just a disaster. It doesn't work. <laughs> well, so, so so it's like it was like a buggy that you had, like a kid, you know, a stroller, and you loaded that up. And what weight was that? And what kind of stuff did you pack with you? It was probably probably eighty pounds or so without water. I would guess maybe seventy pounds without water. So forty uh, kilos. Holy chariot cougar. So just a jogging stroller, like you said. And yeah, it was probably about 80 pounds. And then with water, it would get up to 95, 100, something like that. And it's it was a workout for sure. When you're pushing up and down mountains in Colombia or Ecuador, I mean, I was my back was ripped from pushing this thing up and down. And then in the desert, you'd have to, you'd have to load it up with water. So it was especially heavy. But it's kind of really the only way to walk around the world, I think. I don't think you'd be able to do it with a backpack, especially uh, because I had my dog with me. You just wouldn't be able to carry enough water and enough food to go through some of these stretches. Uh, Even in the US, like in Wyoming, I went nearly a week without seeing anything. And you just wouldn't be able to bring enough water or food in a backpack. 
And also, I just didn't want to be carrying a 70 pound tumor on my back for seven years. I would just, that would just destroy me. Uh, So the cart is kind of, it seems like the only way to do it. Uh, But uh, it's nice too, because it affords you some luxuries because you're not carrying everything on your back. Yeah, Super. I guess I guess it's pros and cons, whatever way you do it. Like, and how's, how's Savannah now? So Savannah is your dog, and I, I I wonder if you could tell the story of how after four months you decided you wanted company. Yes, yeah, Savannah, good. She is loving retirement. You know, she is she. Uh, yeah, yeah. At, at first, we were both struggling a lot, and we would walk in four hours a day just to find something to do. But I think she's settled in now, and Kentucky's so hot that uh when we're outside even she's just like by the door so like let me back into the air conditioning you know she's been outside enough at this point and she's got got a thick coat so she's you know over the uh over the kentucky summer but uh so yeah so i adopted her four months into the walk and the first four months were on my own i i had no real intention of ever getting a dog part of the reason why i wanted to walk around the world was to have ultimate freedom and autonomy and to go wherever I wanted to go whenever I wanted to. But after those four months of walking and camping on my own and sleeping in strange places, kind of every night you just wake up, you know, hearing something probably three or four times a night. And so there was always this thought in the back of my mind and it got stronger as the the months went on that, man, it'd be really nice to have a dog that could listen while I slept. And then I had this strange encounter with this guy in Georgia. Uh, he was a very odd, creepy guy, and I shouldn't have gotten myself into the situation. I wouldn't today, but when I was younger, I was naive. And that encounter too was like led me to think it would be nice to have a dog that could kind of sense this and protect me. And so then I walked to uh, Texas, and I stayed with my cousin and her husband. And that first day there, I thought, I'll just go to an adoption center. I can walk to one that's not too far away just to kind of explore this idea. And I spent about two hours there looking at dogs and not really connecting with any of them. And then right as I was about to leave, they brought out Savannah and her sister. They had been found on the side of a road, brought to a killed shelter, and then Austin Pets Live, the adoption center I was at, took them from a kill shelter uh, to hopefully find a home. And uh, I knew right away pretty much that that was the right dog. And I don't think I would have adopted her, but I actually wasn't going to adopt her. I was going to leave because I still, it's just, this is just a thought I'm throwing around and and adopting a dog to take on a walk around the world is not something to do lightly. And, but as I was about to leave, this woman who was, uh, just there to look at other dog, look at dogs. This is what she did in her off time. She came to the adoption center just to hang out with dogs. She said, "There's puppies will be gone in ten minutes," and uh, and so she kind of forced the issue. And I'm I'm grateful she did. But because of that, I went back and I, I got Savannah. And as I was signing her paperwork, her sister was being adopted too. So she was, the woman was right there, both there for like 10 minutes and they were adopted. Uh, but I think it was the right play. I mean, it was definitely the right play. But at the time, the idea was to get a puppy because they would grow up on the road and she would have no no other life. And so she would be perfectly adapted to walking 24 miles a day and that definitely bore out she was she was up to the task and it must be she must have been like your best friend you know you chat yeah, you have full-on yeah. conversations yeah yeah she was in the desert had some conversations with her but um yeah she is she's definitely she was she was my best friend she was best companion uh she taught me a lot in a way of just kind of consistency and putting in a good day's work without complaint. Uh, you know, there's days that are really tough out there uh, when you're walking and it's hot or, you know, people aren't that nice or you just have strange encounters or you have a stomach ache or your muscles are cramping. And I'm sure Savannah had these as well. I mean, when we were walking through Central America and then Colombia and Ecuador, there was a lot of strays or just territorial dogs that would attack her like 
every day. And so every day we were fending off these dogs and and she's eating new food and all this stuff. So I'm sure she has stomach aches. She's walking just as far as I'm walking each day. And yet every day we would walk and she would do it without complaint and she never sat down. And whenever I was ready to go, she would go. And so she really taught me to just kind of whatever was going on internally to just put in the day and then be satisfied uh, at the end of it. And then when we did get to the end of the day, there was kind of nothing better than wherever we set camp, she would sit next to me. And whenever she did, it allowed me to take in where I was and really appreciate the moment and appreciate that she was there with me. <laughs> so beautiful. Like what a wonderful metaphor. Cause like a dog doesn't kind of bark at you going, I am tired. My tummy sore. They just walk. Like they just kind of get on with it. And like it's something yeah. quite spiritual. About it's probably an experience. easier companion than a human in a sense. Like, you know, humans are great and wonderful and I adore them. But an animal in a sense, it, you know, is, well, that was a really good choice. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people said that to me uh, on the road when I was, when I would stop or I'd be talking to someone and they would say, you definitely chose the right companion. You know, when, when I want to stop, they're ready to stop. And when I want to go, she's ready to go. So it, it's perfect companion in that way. Because you're one of 10 people who've walked around the world and Savannah's the first dog. Uh, did any of the others bring a dog with them? Or was that something, a strategy which you'd heard? Or was that kind of, it just unfolded? A time adaptation. Or innovation. It, it, it definitely happened to me by happenstance, uh, but I believe um, Steve Newman, an Ohioan who I think was the first like recorded uh, guy to walk around the world, he had a couple dogs, uh, but the first dog he in Afghanistan, uh, he was raising money for UNICEF, and some raiders came. They thought he had money on his cart, and they shot at them, and that killed uh, the dog. And then he had brought another dog for the second uh, section of the, of the trip. Uh, so he had a dog, but not one that unfortunately made it all the way around the world. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the only one that, that had a dog with me as far as I know. On the topic of walking, we have worn nothing but Viva Barefoot for the last seven years. Wow. Same as uh, Tom. Uh, we were at an event during the weekend and a friend, Tony Riddle, was talking about research done at the University of Liverpool, I believe it was, where... Nottingham. By, Nottingham, correct. Thank you, David. Uh, by wearing a barefoot shoe such as Viva Barefoot, actually it was Viva Barefoot, uh, participants' muscles in their feet increased by 60% in a month. So it's a great way of improving your foot strength because our foot are how we typically largely engage or interact with the world at a foundational movement level. Yeah, they're wonderful shoes. They really are. They have the full range from whether you're, you know, uh, dress shoes or casual shoes or kids shoes. Full or range hiking. of them. We wore yeah, Viva Barefoot yeah, the hike, at the festival. The hiking great. ones are brilliant. Uh, we're big, big, big believers in them because I think, you know, your foundation starts with your feet. They're obviously the thing that touches the ground and your knees and hips and shoulders and your full posture is aligned in uh, correlation to this. There's 15% off using the code HAPPYPAIR15 and there is a return policy that if you don't like your Viva Barefoot, you can send them back 100 days, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So yeah, check them out. Viva Barefoot Shoes. VivaBarefoot.com. Wow. Were there times when you're safety, like I know myself, even a couple of times, and this is minuscule by comparison, I remember doing a month long cycle around the south of France, sleeping rough. And I remember a couple of times sleeping like up on the top of a mountain, there was a thunderstorm and I was sleeping like in a sleeping bag with a little piece of plastic over. I didn't even have a tent. And I remember in those moments just thinking like, I might die now. I don't really know. Like, uh, it's just absolutely bizarre. And I'm, you know, you can almost say a prayer to a God, whether I'm even religious or not, but there's almost, you hit this divine kind of going, well, if I die, I die. And I imagine there were many moments on your adventure that you felt your safety is at risk and possibly death was around the corner, possibly. I think the worst of it was probably when it got really cold. Uh, there was one night in the mountains of Georgia and I was making this is my Georgia way. Georgia in America? No, Georgia. Georgia the country, sorry. Okay, yeah. Georgia the country. And I was making my way to Tbilisi and uh, kind of winter was setting in. And so I didn't have winter gear yet. And there was a, a cold snap of a night. And we we're right by this lake. So it was extra cold uh, with the wind. 
And when I woke up in the morning, I, I, mean, I barely slept at all. I brought Savannah into the sleeping bag that I had uh, to keep myself warm and to keep her warm. And uh, when I woke up in the morning, I almost passed out just from how cold it was and how cold I was. And I stood up too quickly. And um, and then I just stayed on the ground, kind of huddled together, <laughs> trying to warm myself for a while. So I think the cold was... Uh, and in Wyoming and Kansas too, it was it was brutal. I walked through that in in winter, uh, but I was better prepared for that, and I knew winter was coming at that point. Uh, so that was a little bit more manageable. Uh, there were times, uh, definitely, where I was in danger, but kind of I, I think I had done it for so long. You know, the first year, maybe in Central America, where I thought maybe I'm I'm going to get robbed or mugged. I think that's when I was at the the height of my fear but i also think that was i mean that's in part due to central america is just the most dangerous section in the world it's just you know el salvador and honduras and uh, even mexico are up there on you know the highest uh, murder rates in the world so i was very worried about that but then it was heightened because i didn't have any gauge if i walked through those countries at this point i would know when i was passing through a neighborhood versus an actually dangerous place. But in the beginning, I thought every place, every place was dangerous because I didn't equate, you know, having a concrete home and rebar ready on the second story to build a second story with any sort of prosperity. I thought, oh, this isn't what I'm used to in America, so this is dangerous. And so uh, going through Central America, I definitely was afraid. And a lot of times it was unnecessarily. Uh, but you know, it, it got me through, but then over time, you know, by the time I got to Europe and was walking North Africa and then central Asia and Turkey, I would sleep wherever and like never had a worry in my mind. I, I, it just became such normal life that, uh, even when it was a really big thunderstorm or if we got snowed in or something, it was like, oh, this has happened before, you know, we'll be fine. We'll manage, but we'll hunker down a little bit more. Uh, and if the tent collapses, or if I chose a bad campground, then this is gonna suck for a while, and I'm probably gonna get wet, and I'm gonna have to move the camp, and that's gonna be a bummer, and I'm not gonna get a good night's sleep. But probably be all right. We have enough gear and everything else. Uh, so at a certain point, it became pretty mundane, uh, which made it difficult in a way to just keep going, and and uh, and became its own kind of challenge. Yeah, I guess the continuation must be like because it's it was like five and a half years or seven years in total, you know, excluding COVID and, you know, your illness or whatever, which that equates to how many days is that in total? 15 days. Oh, 1500 days. Like, or Yeah, 1500, 1500 days, something like that. Yeah, about like, that. Yeah. Like that's a lot of Groundhog Day. Like I know there's different locations every day. And if you watch a five minute video, it looks incredible. Oh, my God, there's so much variety. But when you're walking like 25 miles, the scenery doesn't change that much. You know, it changes little bits, but it's like it's it's a slow transition from one place to the other. So, you know, monotony. And I'd, I'd imagine there's a lot of time spent with yourself. Like, how did you manage that? Yeah, it's it's very meditative, for sure. Uh, just having those empty hours and having that boredom really makes you reflect on your life and not by it, it makes you reflect on your life you don't have any choice in the matter whether you want to or not you're so bored these thoughts are going to crop up and you have to consider them and for probably uh, about a year and a half that meditation was really profound and transformative and just over the months uh, i end up or you will end up, if you end up walking around the world, you, you kind of just pick up your thoughts and put them down. And you do that enough times that you find a way to resolve all of them or that you just become bored with them or that uh, they just don't interest you anymore. And so you, you end up just reaching sort of a floor of yourself where, you know, your influences, your idiosyncrasies, your mistakes, your past choices, all of them just become flat in a way and you don't have as much emotion attached to them because you've considered them in, like with clarity so many times. But then as it goes on and you have that resolution, you know, I, after that, how I still had you know, 
three, four more years of actual on the ground walking to do while I was at peace. And then it becomes really boring when you're in like the plains of Turkey or something like that. And the hours really drag on. And at that point, it's just a matter of like fortitude and just, this is what I'm, I signed up to do. And, and another lesson from the road that helped me cope with endless boredom in a certain way was that I knew, uh, being out there, being out in the world is what exposes you to serendipity. And serendipity, I think today is really undervalued in a lot of ways. Uh, we we try and box ourselves off and create this perfect routine and have everything optimized and and insulate ourselves from any distractions distractions at all. But on the road, serendipity is maybe the greatest virtue because you'll have a week where you run into interesting people and you get invited into weddings or you get invited to stay with someone or you have an incredible meal. Uh, and then another week, there will be absolutely nothing happening. But you know, down the line, you will run into something and something will occur uh, that will you know, change your life or change your perspective. And so you, I just came to, in a certain way, rely on just chance encounters and running into people and and bumping into the world. And and how does that apply to your life now? Like now that you are not a man walking around the world, like how does how 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 much does serendipity as a value? participate in your daily life today like, like that. How, participate dance. Yeah, how do you dance with serendipity how, how, and bring it on your you, journey how does it show up how does it manifest how do you see it like or yeah, is it not, or is it as big a player as it was it's definitely not as big of a player as it was um but i think i think the way it contributes and uh the way i try and make it contribute uh america is a very car centric country and i think that really insulates uh, when you drive everywhere that really insulates you uh you're sort of just like driving around this big living room and then you pull up to chick-fil-a and you get your food and then you drive back to your house and the air conditioning and you're just going from like bubble to bubble to bubble and I, for me i think kind of the only way maybe not the only way but the one that's coming to mind right now is i just try and walk and bike everywhere uh if i can just for you know, being outside uh, for the chance of maybe running into someone for having some, you know, random encounter with a stranger or some passing conversation. Uh, I just try, try and avoid, uh, yeah, keeping myself from being totally in a bubble. And of course, it's nice to have routine and you know, I write every morning and, and that's important. Uh, but I do try and just leave myself open in some ways. And I think mostly that's through if I'm going downtown, I'm going to take my bike or I'm going to walk, something like that. So it's a small way, um, but it leaves me open to serendipity. That you bring it along with you. Yeah. And in terms of like um, that balance, okay, for seven years or five and a half years while on the road, you had a clear direction, clear purpose, clear, I am walking around the world. I am Tom. Me and Savannah are walking around the world. How did you find that balance of wanting to be at a certain place by a certain time while also being in the moment, the moment of my legs sore, I'm not walking today. I just met someone cool. They put me up in their restaurant in Chile. I want to stay and see what's happening here. I met someone cool. I want to go. How did you manage that balance? And with that, how do you apply that to being Tom in Kentucky? Uh, it evolved a lot. Uh, in the beginning, I, that, that, probably that first year and a half again, same along with that meditation, uh, I really was just out to prove to myself and to everyone else that I could walk around the world. And so I barely stopped at all. The first year I stopped, I think like a month total time and two of the weeks or three of the weeks were with uh, my cousin getting Savannah and getting her vaccinations. And so I was just a maniac. I mean, I walked 24 miles a day, every day, nonstop. And then that continued on through Colombia, Ecuador, and into Peru. And then in Peru, hotels were cheap enough and I had walked far enough and proven enough to myself that it sort of occurred to me that you should like see some of these places that you're passing through, you know, you should slow down a little bit. And so then I started getting a hotel every weekend in Peru and I would aim to walk. I was still a little bit like a maniac and I would still aim to walk uh, what would have been, I guess, like 200 kilometers or something a week before I would allow myself to get a hotel room. So I'd do these 40 kilometer days and then 
uh, I guess it's 240, actually 240 kilometers. So I'd still do six full days and then I would allow myself two nights. Party time. time. You earned day. it, Tom. You earned it. Yeah, exactly. I, I said very arbitrary, but uh, it allowed me to, at that point, like slow down a little bit. And then okay. as the year went on, it became much more relaxed and more dependent on visas and kind of these larger, what's the climate going to be like in this certain region? Do I, I know I wanted to walk North Africa in winter. So it's like, oh, I have this general aim, but I probably have a month or two to play with. Uh, and then the same, you know, in Turkey or in Georgia, where it's like, okay, I, I need to get to Tbilisi before winter totally sets in. But all the time before that, get, that gives me a pretty big window. I have a 90 day visa in Turkey. You can, I can use it all. And so, you know, it, as I got closer to the border, maybe I would slow down in Samson or Hirasan or something. I would slow down in these old towns on the Black Sea because, all right, I have some time to play with. But that took a while uh, for me to slow down. And even when I got to the U.S., at the very end, um, I met my the, the girlfriend that I'm with now uh, here in Kentucky. I met her in Seattle or in Washington. And... Uh, we met on Labor Day weekends, and so she had like five days off essentially. This is on and your way home, or your way leaving? Right. Yeah, it's on my way home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, from Seattle uh, back to New Jersey, and so we kind of hit it off. And uh, she was putting me up uh, in her little apartment in this random, very tiny little town. And each day, I like would wake up with this. I always have this anxiety to wake up and, all right, it's time to go. We got to burn out some miles. And, but I wanted to stay with her. And so I'd wake up with all this anxiety, like kind of hype myself up, ready to go. And then I go, wait, can, you want to just hang out again today? Like, can I slow down? I did that probably for five days in a row just because it was so ingrained in me to always be going. Uh, but I was back in the US. I didn't have a visa. I didn't have, I could take my time. Uh, so, it took a long time to adjust, and and I think now that the walk is over, I think I'm just kind of getting over that, uh, not having that, um, you know, eight hours or or not even eight, more than eight hours, just every day being packed with something that I need to do, and trying to be more content with putting in a couple hours of work, you know, on on my memoir, and then you know, doing whatever else and being satisfied with that. Uh, that was really difficult at the beginning, just that my, the totality of my day wasn't filled with something. Yeah, that must, uh, I, there's lots of questions jumping to me. Number one is the girlfriend, did you meet your girlfriend on the road? Like on, or did you leave with the girlfriend or how did that happen? No, I met her on the road. Yeah, I met her. Uh, I stopped in a little town after crossing the Cascades, Northern Cascade. Um, National America. Uh, yeah, in America, in Washington, and I stopped in a little town, and she happened to be doing a um, uh, family medicine rotation in the town over, and uh, we met, and then just kind of hit it off, and she happened to have you know five days off, so the timing worked out amazingly, and then she kind of followed me a little bit through. She drove out to meet me in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana too, and uh, and we just hit it off, and uh, so. Uh, that was that was that, and this was at the tail end of your trip rather than at the start. And saying, "See you in five years, bye." Yeah, no, I before the walk, I ended things, or my girlfriend and I, we ended things, um, and we had been dating for I guess three and a half years, something like that. And it was, I knew, uh, you know, it would be it, it would be ridiculous to ask someone to wait five years and or to presume that you could do five years of long distance while I'm out there. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that was never happening from the offset. I wasn't going into this with a relationship. It would have been selfish and foolish. And crazy. And, and I'd imagine, I, 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 I'm, I'm, twitching, so I'm twitching to ask this one because, because <laughs> the version of Tom that leaves, like Tom has an idea of what seven years walking around the world is going to be like, and you have this idea or whatever, and then you go and do it. And like you, the time that leave and the time that come home are, are likely extraordinarily different people. Like really, you, you only embark in this adventure because you know you're going to reach the depths of your soul. You're going to reach the height. You're going to reach every, you're going to experience so much. So that that kind of journey of of start to finish, like you must feel like 
I mean, are you still friends with your existing friends, your family? Like, how do you see the world differently? I suppose it's a difficult question to answer because it's a bit like bull and the frog. You kind of. Yeah, no, no, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way to, uh, to, to phrase it. It is this really, really gradual growth. And I think in the beginning, the lessons uh, are very obvious and you feel the growth happening. Uh, you know, the, the, that guy in Georgia that I met and kind of got into the situation with, that was very much a very conscious lesson where it was like, you need, if you get a bad vibe from someone, you need to trust your gut and just go with that. And so like, there's a lesson like lying in the sand kind of thing. And then when I got into Mexico and in El Salvador, Honduras, and, you know, I was talking about these neighborhoods that for me seemed uh, like they were so poorly off, but it's actually just people living their life like anywhere else. That's another very conscious lesson that I learned. And so in the beginning, they're really, they're really defined these lessons. But then as, as the years go on, the change happens just so just more and more gradually and more subtly that you kind of end up losing any sense of growth and you go, how did I grow at all? And, and you just kind of end up feeling like you're existing and you're out there not learning anything, but you are, you're learning a lot of things. You're learning a lot of the subtleties of how countries interact, how people make a living, all sorts of different things. Um, but the looking back on who I was at the beginning, it was just, I was just an idiot. I mean, I was I was grew up in a suburb, you know, tall white male, not a not a problem in the world. I always had food in the fridge, kind of thing, and um, just very naive. And so I think that was the main thing was just going out there and just interacting with the world. And so uh, it's I think it's I think it's funny in a certain way. You know, when you, when your parent or your parents are giving you advice and, you know, you, you can, you can give whatever advice you want on it, but the kid's not going to listen if they haven't lived through it. And so I feel like if I met my younger self, it'd be the same way. I say, Hey, you know, you got to do this, pay attention, whatever, da, da, da. I'd, I'd give myself advice, but I wouldn't hear it because I would just be, you know, arrogant and dumb and naive. And, uh, but that's why, you, that's why you go on an adventure is to, to grow and learn and, and change. Mm. Amazing. How does your relationship with time? Because like seven years is this arbitrary concept and like you're on the road and you're going, okay, I'm a hundred days in, only 1400 days more to go or something, you know, huge like that. Like, and obviously in meditation, sometimes I know myself, if I've meditated for even say, say I'm doing a long day and we're going all out and say I did two hours, it could be two minutes, two hours, two years. I don't know. Like, how do you relate to time over like, the middle of the walk where you're like 750 days in and you're going, fuck, I'm halfway. And there was, there was a mental switch that, dev an, an emotional switch too, that happened probably after Africa. And I realized I was on the second half of my walk and it became more anticipatory. Whereas before it was me discovering the world and then it became, oh, I'm you know, mm -hmm. I'm gone downhill now and, and home is in sight in a certain way. And in that way, it, on that second half, it was almost less enjoyable of a walk because I was seeing, like seeing the end approaching. Um, but then for, I think for such like, uh, for such a, a large scale of time for, for those seven years, I think in one of my posts and one of my Instagram posts, I talk about it a little bit, but the seven years felt like 20 years. I mean, every day was just so hot with newness and your brain is just constantly adapting to new things and new cultures. And every night I'm finding a different place to sleep and interacting with new people, trying new foods, seeing a new part of the world. And so now it feels like the days go by really quickly because there's just not as much newness to adapt to. While well, when I was out there, it's just a flood constantly. And every day is just really, really long and drawn out, even in hindsight. She's wow. hearing you talk just makes me want to go on an adventure. But, but, like, but, it, but, it, also, but it also makes no. me kind of go that like, you know, it happens like it's the ultimate meditation because it's so gradual. It's such a, uh, it's like there is so much newness, but there's so much just walking. 
Like this, so, uh, that sounds so stupid to say, like, cause we're talking to you who's walked around the world. But when I put my help, my, you know, my, I imagine being in your footsteps, it's showing up every day, pushing your carriage, walking along, you know, you obviously you need to eat lots of food cause you're probably burning tons of calories. So you got to find food and then find shelter. It's back to the uh, basics of humanity, shelter, food, survive. And in your case, walk 24 miles a day. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I got Savannah was very much that original reason we joined with wolves or dogs in the first place was because we wanted someone to protect camp, and that's why I got Savannah. And so it was, in a, in a lot of ways, back to uh, a sort of, um, I, I don't want to say it's not primordial, but like a, a sort of reversion in, uh, in, in a way to live. And it was very satisfying. I mean, it was very satisfying. It's very simple. Like you said, get up and walk. I do it with my dog. It's amazing. We find a place to sleep, get some food, see the world. It's like, it was a great life. It was very difficult, but it was a great life. But yeah, I think difficulty uh, gives... Uh, hey, my turn. Okay, okay, your turn. Well, oh, gives rise, task. Like difficulty gives rise to, you know, like life will test you before it rewards you or treasure you, you know, that way. So that there needs to be, you know night and day there's the duality of life so I, I think the, the greater the challenge the greater the reward ultimately in life but one simple question as the five year old inside me goes Tom will you tell me one of your favourite stories on your trip I love hearing stories man oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories right, so there's so many but one that comes to your mind anyway you know it doesn't have to be your all time favourite sure yeah um, let's see I mean the one that, the one that comes to mind but I've told this before so I'm trying to think of something else for uh for you guys um i would say uh all right we'll, we'll say in colombia i was in uh i had my axle break in uh la plata Huila. it's like up in the mountains kind of in the coffee growing region and uh i was waiting for a new axle to be shipped because it's this weird specific axle and so i was waiting for that to be shipped down and in the meantime, I thought, all right, I'm going to go over this pass with just me and Savannah and uh, my backpack, and we'll, I'll leave the car in this hotel, and I'll walk over to uh, the next city. It's like, a, I think, a four-day walk, and there's towns on this pass spread out far enough that I can just, if I push myself, I can get to get to a little hostel or something every night, a little room every night, and you know, it'll be fine. And uh, so Savannah and I uh, did this walk, and... And it was really special, this section, because it was in uh, the ecosystem up there after that first day is uh, a paramo, which is this high altitude uh, above the timberline kind of rainforest in a way where it's it's raining 300 plus days a year, uh, but it's above the timberline, so there's no trees. And so you have moss that's grown out like crazy. There's waterfalls, there's ferns blooming, uh, there's tapirs, there's uh, spotted uh, bears or spectacle bears. And uh, it's like this really, really mystical kind of uh, Alice in Wonderlandy uh, environment. And Savannah and I were walking this dirt road at the whole time. We saw maybe uh, a bus here and there that would pass. Uh, but it's just me and her in the backpack in a rain jacket. And each night, these towns were about 30 uh, miles apart from each other. We'd have to walk all day. But I remember getting into this one town at night and it's so remote and there's only a few little um, street lights, the amber street lights. And it felt like we're like underwater because it's so sort of dreamy and these lights are glowing and the stars are overhead. And um, yeah, I remember getting into this and the one hostel uh, didn't have any rooms. Uh, it was probably like, there's probably like three rooms in the place anyway. And, uh, and then this other one, uh, let me in, and uh, I had this uh, very comfortable. I mean, it wasn't a comfortable mattress, but when you're out there walking for 30 miles, like if you have a mattress, it's fantastic. And I'm in this little wooden room, and there's posters of Blink 182 and Britney Spears and like Nirvana posters around <laughs> in the middle of Columbia. And um, and then I went downstairs, had some great uh, soup and uh, some uh, you know chicken and rice, and um, so it's not. I mean. That's pretty much it. It's not, it's not a story, but this is the memory that comes to mind that I haven't told on a podcast. And it's kind of one of these things that, um, yeah, unless you're out there, 
Like it was such a unique way to experience this ecosystem because I know people go to this place. It's a natural park, um, but you go probably pop in and you see it and you go, oh, this is beautiful, whatever. But to like live four days in this very dreamy, surreal uh, ecosystem with just my backpack and Savannah walking with me, it was like that was as good of walking as I ever had uh, out there. It's, it's, even listening to you describe it, I... I, I... You're, you're, it's just beautiful I feel because it's a great I metaphor feel, like that idea like if you hike a mountain it's very different to if you were helicoptered and just dropping the top you perceive it so different and you value the the pursuit of getting there so much different and it's a bit like as you said walking through that place for four days you felt it so much more than if you were in a bus and even seeing you window. describe it like like you're in your face you can like it's like wow that feeling is yeah you know, wow Looks incredible. It's even uh, to experience it vicariously. I'm like, yeah, that was a cool adventure. Even listening to your yeah, adventure. those speckled eyed bears are cool. Paddington. I think. I mean, I think part of uh, traveling that way, if, if you're cycling or walking, um, what's great about it is that you're not putting a lot of weight on the highlights. You're not putting a lot of weight on Machu Picchu or the Eiffel Tower. Um, and those places, you know, they're. They're like destinations for a reason because they are generally spectacular. Uh, but when you're walking through a place or you're cycling through a place, you really come to value all the in-between. And when you discover a mom and pop restaurant where uh, you had just cycled 100 kilometers, or 180 kilometers, or you had just walked 40 kilometers and you come to this little mom and pop restaurant, sometimes it's drunk, but sometimes it will be so good and this woman cares so much about her meal and it will be the best meal you ever had and that happens so many times and so you have these like really uh vivid memories and experiences uh of places because you kind of earn them in a certain way you're not just showing up and going well what do you have to offer me it, you you show up and you exist there and whatever they have is is seems like an abundance Mm. It, like it makes me think of when I was a younger man I was definitely trying to do places like you'd go to a place and you'd go to as you said Machu Picchu or you'd go to you know you'd tick these places that you were meant to go to and then as I've got older you know and I'm sure Steve kind of agrees with it we're about 43 now and I'd kind of go that um, like if someone asked me that question oh, where where was your favourite place in the world and I'd kind of go I'm less into the place it's more about the experience and who I'm there with like the place is kind of Sure, there's pretty places and they look beautiful, but ultimately it's how you feel in a place is the experience within it. And it's ultimately like the people you're with and the environment and where your head is at really. Is that kind of what you experienced on your 1500 day or your yeah 1500 day walk? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, at a certain point, you know, places, like the beauty of a place is secondary. Um, I think at the beginning of of your travels, at least for me, when I came to Lake Atalan in Guatemala, the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. It was incredible. And um, that in itself just really amazed me and wowed me. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate because you do lose that a little bit. And so you see these beautiful places and it is nice to be at a beautiful place. But again, like you said, it's more about what you're doing, who you're with, what you're feeling uh, than it is about the place. That's just that's just sort of the backdrop to things. And so what I think yeah, becomes more important is, uh, you know, this is, it's, uh, there's this, there's this lesson I think that comes from traveling a lot and and being in all these different places where the backdrop, the 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 landscapes aren't aren't as important, but then the systems and like the country itself and the politics and the infrastructure, all that becomes extra important. Um, and because because you see how it affects everyone, you know, if people are. Uh, there, there's just like there's a subtle difference in a democracy and in, in an autocracy and i passed through a few autocracies dictatorships and uh you know a bunch of democracies and whenever you get into a democracy the people are just relaxed and so like you realize after traveling enough that there are things that matter more than just a beautiful landscape like there there's parts of algeria that are stunning and beautiful but there's this weird sort of little 
uh, psychology that happens when you're under this dictatorship. People can't express themselves freely. And um, so, yeah, there, there's all these different layers to it. But I think the beauty of a place ends up just being in a certain way secondary after traveling enough. Wow. And in terms of even in the, that topic of the people, because I hadn't thought about that, about that you would slowly see all these political systems and means of which we manage ourselves as humans on the planet, where there's certain kind of systems or certain environments that you went, boom, that like they've got something really special here. Like in my head, I would go, Bhutan has always been a place I've been very curious about. And, you know, they measure gross national happiness and it's not GDP and it's very eco-conscious. And I'm very curious about it because it just seems like you know, their values, I espouse to their values and I idealize them or romanticize them. And I wonder within your travels, where there's certain systems or countries that you thought they've got a lot right, like, you know, American culture or Western culture is often idealized as, yes, this is the pinnacle of human existence. What was your experience with that? Uh, I mean, every country has, you know, it's pros and cons. There's no like perfect place. Um, but I think that the, the country maybe that changed me uh from the beginning like the most in a certain way uh was denmark uh, just from the infrastructure and I, I have i've never been to the netherlands but uh coming from america again very car-centric place and then being in denmark and copenhagen where people were riding their bikes everywhere that was a very eye-opener and the first two years of walking were very insular and so then after that it became much more about experience the world and seeing these contrasts and so Denmark was probably the first time where I went, oh, well, there's like a different way to do this thing. And uh, so that was a very, uh, that was very transformative and just being able to see that a city could be built not around automobiles like it is here. Uh, but then Georgia as well is way up there uh, for uh, a country that I just have uh, an incredible amount of respect for. It's a really tiny country, 3 million people. Uh, they are uh, extremely free market and they're extremely um, like free movement of people. Uh, I could go and stay there for 365 days a year if I want it, uh, just because that's how open their visa program is. Uh, and then on top of that, they're extremely democratic and uh, they're sort of fighting uh, Russian influence and this Russian puppet um, president who uh, had run in the past. He's not elected anymore. Uh, but there, it's this country that's a young democracy and they're becoming more and more democratic. And that really drove home to me seeing these people and how uh, vibrant they were and how beautiful the culture was. And like the restaurants were amazing. The art was amazing. The conversations were fantastic. And a lot of it stemmed from their pride in being able to, um, everyone have an, an opinion and everyone able to being able to express their opinion. And then right next to it, you go to Azerbaijan where you go to Uzbekistan and all of a sudden there's this weird tension in the air and you just can't express yourself in the same way. And the culture doesn't feel like it has the same depth and the restaurants don't feel like they have the same sort of uh, uh, joie de vie or whatever. I don't know. What is it? Uh, whatever that French expression is. Uh, it just misses something. And so I really saw like the power of uh, democracy in in such a subtle but pervasive way. And uh, so for me, it kind of like at this point, my political opinion is basically just make every country as democratic as as possible. And so that's pretty much that's that's what I came away with. Well, amazing that you actually got to experience it and, and compare and contrast. Like to start to land this conversation. Obviously, this is a question you're asked loads, but I think there's such relevance to anyone. And, and uh, it, it, it seems ridiculous to ask you to still like, you know, 1500 uh, days traveling on the road, walking and all that. But where there are obvious learnings, because I heard you talk about that all humans, no matter where you were in the world, that there's this spirit of kindness. And I think to me, that's something that's so beautiful to hear. It's like, wow, we are all simply trying to do our best and get along in this world. Yeah, I mean, like sort of related to uh the last thing I said is, you know, part of the reason why uh, you realize democracy is so important or why systems are so important is because underneath that, the more fundamental lesson is that it's just people everywhere and there's good people everywhere. It's people trying to make a little money and spend time with their family. Like that is everywhere. And when I would enter these countries, some of them, you know, more dangerous than others and 
ostensibly or not, per- perceived or not. I would always have people reaching out to me saying, you got to be careful here. You know, you don't know. Or even in even in some places, they'd say the next village, you got to be careful in the next village. They'll, they'll steal, you know, the, the, the clothes right off of your back. And you get there and it's just people. And and, and, and I get this question, how can you walk around the world? It's like people are walking everywhere. You're just passing through someone else's town. You're new there, but someone is walking there. Kids are walking to school there. You know, people are walking to work there. So all that is is just people. People are the same everywhere, uh, which is very reassuring. And, um, and, and, and again, it just makes the systems that much more important because you realize uh, there are really intelligent, driven people uh, that are smarter than I am, are smarter than all of us, and that are more driven than us, and are more creative, and could offer more to the world. But maybe they're, you know, who knows what they're stuck doing? They're stuck in the deserts of Peru, and they they'll never leave because they have a Peruvian passport, and they don't have an Irish passport or an American passport. And so it just makes uh yeah, I think that's 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 one of the fundamental lessons for sure of the walk uh, is that, you know, no matter where you go, it's it's just people. Wow. And what about your reflections on life? Because obviously you've had you have a lot of time to ponder it. And now you're back home and you're back in American culture. You know, you're back in the great Western democracy and and you probably ha- and you, you've had time now to kind of distill it and reflect back on some of what you've gone and like. I can't imagine that you're the same person looking at the same thing. Like, you know, the person that left, the Tom that left and, you know, worked in his job and worked in a restaurant and worked in solar panel companies and whatever to raise money for this adventure versus the Tom that's back now. Like, like you must have perspectives on life or views on it and want to put them into action. Like what kind of inspires you now? What motivates you? What what reflections do you have on this experience called life that we're all fumbling along through? Yeah, it's... It's challenging being back for sure, uh, because you are just sort of so removed from this culture that uh, you know I, I saw is is not the ultimate culture. It's just a culture, um, and so it, it becomes difficult because um, I just compare it all the time. Whereas before, I just lived in it, uh, so. That's that's challenging, but as far as like life and 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 that perspective, I think you know, things that, that were driven home to me were just value. I try and value my time like that has the highest priority um, versus money. Um, you know, if I can own my own time, then that's a win for me. Um, and then on top of that, I sort of measure everything with. Uh, with happiness, like happiness is the is the only measure. You know, the reason you pursue everything is to be happy. The reason you want money is so you can have security, so you can relax and you can spend time with your family and you can be happy. And so, sort of keeping that in mind and measuring all of my actions and my interactions from that f- frame, uh, I think, leads me to live a little bit differently than a lot of people would. Going back to very simply biking or walking to um uh you know to downtown or to a bar or to a friend's place something like that i think when uh you look at the car it's very efficient at getting you there as quickly as possible but there is going to be hours in my day where i'm probably just going to be i'm going to be relaxing in bed or maybe i'll watch some television or whatever it's like i don't really need to get there as quickly as possible it's better to take a walk to walk there or to bike there because then i'm outside and i'm enjoying the air and i'm experiencing the world maybe i run into someone maybe I have a random interaction kind of thing like that so it that is, i feel like is a small shift that I I wouldn't have made before where it was it was much more everything was based on efficiency and now it's more okay how much happiness is this thing going to bring me and is there a way to be happier um and so I think that's the primary that's probably the primary shift and it has a lot of different uh implications uh, and it's very subtle uh, but uh, it's definitely a question that's always in my head and how does it relate to work now because you know the way 
we, we, we've all kind of, you know, you work to live kind of like, you know, or you live to work. Like in Western culture, most of us work, live to work. Like work is just takes up the most, the majority of our adult life. And you wandering around the world, you've seen the way so many different people exist. And what are your own reflections with your own life and looking at work now? Do you see it differently? Do you, you know, do you want to get a job? No. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there's value in definitely like the social aspect that I, there's a certain part of that that I miss. I like this, like having, you know, uh, people to hang out with. Uh, and, but yeah, my goal is definitely to work as little as possible and on something that I enjoy doing. Um, and fortunately, it seems like it's working out where, you know, I'm, I'm working on the memoir. I have a children's book, hopefully, maybe today even, uh, I'll be start selling. And cool. uh, what's I, it called? Uh, it's Savannah's World of Adventure, uh, Crossing the Andes. So I'm, I'm hoping to do a whole series for every country we walk through, but the first one is uh, Crossing the Andes, and it's Savannah's uh, adventure over that. And uh, Yeah, so you learn a little bit about the world, see the world, and have, a, have an adventure as well. Um, so doing writing, uh, speaking engagements. Uh, so in a certain way, I'm very fortunate because... Uh, the speaking engagements pay fairly well and they're one-offs and then the writing satisfies a lot of my creative urges. Uh, but you know, I don't know, people need money. So you got to work sometimes. And, and that's, I did before the walk, like you said, uh, putting in solar panels and, uh, working at, uh, a restaurant. Uh, there's times I work three jobs at a time. Uh, when I was doing solar panels, I was working 14, 16 hour, hour days. My boss was a maniac, uh, but made great money and it helped me pay off my loans. Uh, so I think in a certain point, it's, you know, knowing what you want. Like money is a tool, obviously. Um, and it's, and it's, I think it's just a matter of measuring it properly and, and how much you need of it to, to, you know, get what you want in, in a certain way and knowing you know, why do you want this thing at once. So for me, the world walk was what I wanted, what I wanted to achieve. And in order to do that, I had to work like crazy for years and years and years uh, to give myself a chance of doing it. Uh, but now I, I, you know, am fortunate enough where I don't need to work 16 hour days anymore <laughs> to, uh, uh, to achieve what I want. And I can just hang out with Savannah and write and, and be content. Oh, content. That's well, a, what what does it for anyone listening? Because it was a question that came to me when I was reading about you and listening about you. Is like, how much does it did it cost you to walk around the world? Like, how much did you need to save? The well, the primary I needed to work to pay off my student loans, and uh, but uh, the first year, the first two years was about fourteen thousand dollars, so not much, uh, less than minimum wage, and then the next five years. I don't know exactly, but I would say probably like $30,000 a year. And that was living pretty flush. You know, there's, you can definitely do it a lot cheaper. The 14,000 year, uh, 14,000, uh, even that was like, okay. In the Americas, the Americas were very affordable. Um, but I started a Patreon when I got to Europe because Europe was just much more expensive and densely populated. So I needed to get more hotels more often than I did in the Americas. Uh, but yeah, with flights and everything, it was probably like thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, about uh, once, uh, once I was out of uh, the Americas. Wow, it's incredible! I love the fact that you're almost applying the Dave Harold editor spoke the ideals about Bhutan, like gross domestic happiness, and it seems like you're trying to optimize your life to maximize your time, experience because time being your ultimate value, and then in the pursuit of happiness uh, and contentment. But that, but that goes loggerheads against current culture. So, like it's going to test your own resolution because current culture does not kind of optimize for happiness. It optimizes for efficiency and productivity and yeah. financial, you know, f financial gain, you know. There's a, there's a very, um, it's a very noticeable consumerism that I don't have. And it's not that to say that I, I, I don't like nice things. I do like nice things. I, I, I want to live in a historic house with lots of character and, you know, I want plants in my house to make for a nice environment, but 
I do notice I I don't or may, I like this thing worked. This certain type of consumerism has worked out of me from just living out of the baby garage for seven years that everyone else has. <laughs> where <laughs> it seems like there is like a a thing for everything for every little slight inconvenience there's one thing you can buy for that and if it isn't that thing it's not maximally efficient and whatever you have is subpar and so it seems like uh that there's a lot of unnecessary uh purchasing of things when maybe the thing you have will already do and it won't be totally optimized but it's just fine um so yeah there's there's a certain um a certain mindset, I think that that has changed in me uh, that I now notice that I probably had before in other people uh, in that Western just consume, consume, consumerism. It's amazing. Final question, just one, and it's one. It's a real obvious question, but it's something that I feel uh, pro propelled or driven or need feel to. Have to. I feel like I want to ask you just simple, like for to younger Tom. What would you tell younger Tom, Tom, or someone listening who's there, kind of? You know, they're at that age and they're kind of all of us, all, all of us, us who's all looking us. for more out of life and is kind of going, there's an itch there that they want to scratch. What would you say? And and it's probably not realistic that they're going to walk around the world, like, you know, because there's only but, 10 but, people. But challenge can mean anything to some. Challenge doesn't mean walking around the world. Well, this is the this is the lesson that I gave at the end of my keynote, which is to be more reckless. And that is something that when Amory died, that I realized you needed to do is that you're dead. The game is already over. You There's no way out. You lost the game, but you're here and you're alive. So, and you're, you are smarter and stronger than you realize, and you are more adaptable than you realize. So you have to be a little bit reckless and reckless, not in the sense of dismissing your friends and family, but be more reckless in pursuit of your dreams, uh, in, in failing and failing a thousand times and then learning and adapting. So that's what I was saying. Be more reckless. Amen. I yeah. love that. Tom, anyone listening who goes super inspired, how can I support you? How can I buy your memoir? How can I buy your book? How can I support your cause? How can they learn more? I tried to find an Instagram. I couldn't find you. It's walking around the world. It's an easy one. Okay. Right the, the Tom world Tursic. walk. Okay, the yeah. world walk, yeah, it's okay, easy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the world walk on Instagram. Uh, I have a Substack uh, that I'm writing about, uh, sort of taking the best of everything from around the world on and applying that on how to live better day to day. Uh, so you can do that. It's called Upon Reentry, and then the children's book, hopefully out today. You, you know, it'll be on my Instagram, be on my website, Tom Tersage, the memoir. Hopefully coming out in seven, eight months, something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's all on TomTursage.com. You can find it on there. Well done. You're amazing. I love chatting with you. Love what you're doing. Congratulations. And I the really, person you've become. Yeah, I, I really look forward to listening to your book. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you guys. Yes, good questions. I appreciate it. A pleasure. Yeah. And if you ever come to Ireland, come visit. We have a cool little part of the world. But maybe you're uh, done traveling. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're, you're done, done traveling. traveling. <laughs> you just want to stay at home with Savannah. <laughs> no, no, back in Ireland at some point. I have no doubt really? about it. Oh, send oh, yeah. on our numbers. We've got a farm and you can camp in our garden if you want to camp or, or I'm, we can I'll put you I'll have a spare up. room. I'll have a spare room with a nice mattress, I hope. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Tom Tursus. You're some man, as we'd say here in Ireland. Some man. Some man. Oh, and, man. Uh, best of luck with your book. Yeah, it was great talking with you guys. I want to walk around the world. I want to walk around the world. I want to walk around the world. I want to go on an adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, if you join us on a walk, we're going to start our adventure around the world. No, no, but I might walk to work tomorrow. Yeah, and I think it's a nice reminder about like the few things that we got there. Lizzie was talking about the importance of the small, little kind of spontaneous encounter. And I like that reckless pursuit of your dreams. I like the idea of optimizing your day for serendipity. That sounds hilarious. Like that sounds really, really interesting. How do I optimize my day for serendipity? Well, it's probably walking and moving around environment but it's also not being overly attached to getting there by a certain time it's also 
you know, having that moment of yeah. rose along the way. One feeling I got from the conversation was the idea that efficiency is something that we optimize for in most of Western culture in our societies. Whereas he kind of talked about, well, optimizing my life for happiness is a really wonderful thing to do. So, yeah, that's a big takeaway I got. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to reading his book whenever it comes out. Well, I don't say reading, I'm going to say listen, because that's how I can. And I look forward to meeting him up when he comes down the spare room someday. Anyway, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, wishing you a day full of spontaneity, happiness, joy and adventure and uh, ultimately. Yeah, and if you enjoyed this podcast, do check out other ones because we've done 130 episodes now or so. And we love it. Yeah. Wishing you a great day. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.